Hello to you. I do hope you're well. Welcome to the RE Podcast. I'm Ben Wardle and coming up this week we're talking all things religious language. So we will be talking ataphatic, cataphatic and symbols. It's all very exciting, isn't it? Remember, if you haven't already, um, subscribe to the podcast and never miss a weekly episode. Watch on YouTube, listen on Spotify. So we're talking all things religious language. I absolutely love this topic so, so much. There are so many opportunities to make those synoptic links, which, as you know, I am all about. And there are also many, many opportunities to bring in um, examples, particularly from Christianity, for example, because if you think about the Bible, it's literally religious language in a book, you know? So the foundations, if you like, for Christianity are based on this idea that we can use words and we can use language to talk about God and to express belief. Um, And so when we talk about alternative perspectives on this, for example, the idea you can't say anything about God at all, or you can only say what God is not, that is quite controversial. So we can really explore a lot of religious history here in terms of how different people, how different religions believe that you can, or in the case of many, that you cannot talk about God. So plenty to discuss. I really want us to start today by taking a step back. So I've got in front of me here the OCR A-level spec. Um, but of course, whatever exam board you are exploring this through will have very similar themes. And the OCR spec is very much focused on understanding um, different religious teachings and comparing significant ideas presented in works of scholars, which is, of course, what you'll find in every section of this spec. But what the OCR exam board is really interested in is comparing the usefulness of different approaches to religious language. It's about uh, asking whether the different approaches enable effective understanding of theological discussion. That's very wordy, isn't it? But basically, all that means is, you know, does the via positiva, does the via negativa, do they allow us to understand what religious language is trying to do? So then when we hear religious language in church, for example, when we hear religious language in um, theological discussion, people trying to talk about God, for example, or talk about um, religion as a whole, is that, you know, effective? Is that successful in terms of promoting religious belief, strengthening faith, um, entering into debate and um, discussion? One really, really interesting topical point um, before we dive into this that I would make is from that modern perspective, this is all very interesting. And you'll explore this more when you talk about Wittgenstein and you explore language games and the verification and falsification principles. Because in the modern world, we've got this thing called um, epistemic imperialism. The idea that if something cannot be empirically verified, then that language is essentially meaningless. You know, we value, as AJS says, things for which there is evidence. You know, we like to have those facts. Science, for example, is the best example here. You know, science will only accept something if it can be proved, if it can be demonstrated. You know, if you've got those scientific studies and those lab results um, and you've got that proof. And the thing is, we take that scientific language, which is all about that empirical certainty, and we sort of juxtapose that with what religious language is trying to do. You know, so when you have a religious statement, you have Jesus walking on water, turning water into wine or rising from the dead. Our central question here is, are those biblical writers trying to make scientific statements? Are they using language in the same way as our contemporary scientists who use language with a lot of authority, you know, grounded in empiricism and as a um, case of proof, if you like, of scientific certainty and empirical proof. Is that what the biblical writers were trying to acquire and trying to achieve? Or were they using language in a very different way? So when we take that step back and we sort of consider religious language, what we're considering is how religions, how religious people use language. Do they use it in a literal way, for example? Or is it more of a metaphorical approach to using language? And most importantly, what are the consequences of this? Um, off the top of my head, I'm thinking of Alistair McGrath, who proposed that idea, didn't he, of the non-overlapping magisteria. The idea that you've got science doing its thing over here, explaining how things happen, and then religion 
on the other side, um, explaining why things happen. He believed that they can sort of coexist independently. They don't overlap. Science is doing one thing and using language in one way. And then over on the other side, religion is doing its own thing and therefore using language in a very different way. That's very language games, isn't it? And we're not quite there yet. <laughs> we'll be talking about that when we talk about 20th century perspectives, of course. But for now, it's nice to just start thinking about what a religion's trying to do when they use language. When they say God exists or when they say, you know, God is the father or Jesus rose from the dead. When language is used in this way by religions, is that a empirically verifiable proposition, for example, or is that meant to take on a different kind of meaning and a different kind of language usage altogether? So plenty to think about, plenty to start discussing and reflecting on. But today we're going to be talking about the apophatic way, the cataphatic way and symbol. Now, a quick anecdote for you. This was one of the questions on my A-level uh, philosophy of religion paper way, way back, many years ago, <laughs> back in my youth, my loves, and I got on the paper, oh my gosh, it was so traumatic, so we sat there in the exam room, oh my goodness, and I'm thinking, I've got this, come on, come on, and you know, I'm in the zone, I'm ready to go, and I turn that sheet over, right, and obviously you've got your four questions, you got to choose three to do. I'm thinking, let the fun begin. Come on, I can do this. I've been reading my quotes <laughs> all day, every day. I've been reading my quotes over breakfast. I've been reading them outside of the exam room. I was ready. I turned that sheet over and my heart dropped because I saw this word that I didn't understand. It was, now I can't actually remember, this is terrible. I can't actually remember whether it was the word apophatic or cataphatic. Um, I'll have to check the past papers um, from 2018. It was my loves, oh, I am old. Um, and, oh my goodness. And in that moment, I don't know what the other question I could have chosen was, but I didn't want to do it because I knew the word was related to religious language, but I didn't know whether that word meant via positiva or via negativa. So I took, no pun intended here, a leap of faith. Thanks, Kierkegaard. And oh my goodness, <laughs> I was terrified. I was like, maybe if the essay is really, really good, but you've not got the word in the question right, they might be nice to you. Anyway, it was a 50-50 gamble and oh my life, thank goodness, it paid off and I had got it right and I came out the exam and I checked it straight away and you know when you just feel overwhelmed by relief. So I think the moral of the story here is that know your key terms really. <laughs> if there's a term on the specification and you don't actually know it, all I knew was via positiva and via negativa. So I'm seeing words like cataphatic, I'm thinking, excuse me. So there's my lesson and I'll never forget that. So, you know, know your key terms, my love. So we'll be talking about cataphatic, ataphatic and symbol. So it's all very exciting. I wanted to kick off with a couple of key thinkers and key quotes for you. You know I'm all about those sources of wisdom and authority. I think they really demonstrate well to the examiner, well to your, you know, assessor, that you know your stuff. And they're great, great points. Not just for your AO1 when you're showing that you know what you're talking about, always helpful, but also when you have got a bank of key thinkers and key quotes, you know, that you've got, you can deploy them in your AO2. You know, you can say, no, I don't agree with this. And here's um, Master Eckhart, for example, or Plato or Descartes, who said this, which supports me. And that is an amazing killer blow moment in terms of securing you those top tier grades. Because if you can draw upon sources of authority and expertise in your evaluations, then it's a tick, tick, tick from me. So we're going to start just to set the scene, if you like, by looking at some of the key thinkers on religious language. Also, as I say, the synoptic links, there's some great synoptic links here. Religious experience, for example, you know, if you think about it, it's doing a lot of the same thing here, saying these religious experiences, which we're saying are ineffable, that they transcend the ordinary, you know, they again are working in a different kind of way to any other physical, ordinary human experience. So, you know, 
what Ninian Smart and what William James say, for example, about the nature of religious experiences, we can apply a lot of that, we can consider a lot of that in terms of religious language as well. Um, so lots of synoptic links we can be making. Um, let me know if you've got any exciting ones of your own on social media, at BenWardle underscore Twitter and Instagram. So Master Eckhart had a really interesting perspective here. I, I think the first thing I need to say is that obviously we are assuming from sort of that Christian perspective, you can use language to talk about God. If you read the Bible, you will read about God is, you know, God, all these descriptions, all this information about God that we're being told in words. And so that's sort of our starting point here, that that is done, you know, by religions. In church, for example, you'll talk about God. In prayer, you'll use words. But is that the right thing to do? Meister Eckhart did not believe so. He said that using language to describe God actually hinders understanding. Really interesting that, isn't it? We usually think of language being the key catalyst and the key tool for developing our understanding and, you know, providing us with the information. When you're using language, you're describing something which you think would contribute to your understanding and your insight. But Meister Eckhart actually says it hinders it. So when you start trying to use words to describe God, it stops you from understanding him. And the word him itself, the pronoun, is a word. So even describing God as him is a problem. You know, it's a barrier to understanding. And um, Meister Eckhart said that true understanding happens when you leave all ideas behind. And again, that's that idea, isn't it? That ideas are a very human thing. It's all very anthropological. So as Feuerbach says, for example, theology is anthropology. It's all about projections. And so when we use human language, we do fall into the trap, maybe, of anthropomorphizing God, because human language talks about the human world and human experience and human beings, all of which God is apparently not. If God is transcendent, God is outside the world, how can you use language, which is a human construct, a worldly concept, to talk about something which goes above and beyond anything that um, the world can understand and comprehend. So interesting that you have to leave behind language, which is seen as a barrier to understanding, rather than use language to facilitate understanding. Plotinus said that God can be experienced, but the experience is ineffable and cannot be described in words. Great link there to a religious language, for example. Um, and William James and the pint model, that idea that it is the eye of the pint, ineffable, that you wouldn't be able to articulate an experience or an counter with the divine because it goes so beyond the ordinary. If you could use words to describe God or religious experience, does that not reduce God to being a very worldly um, and a very physical earthly concept, if you like, when the whole point of religion is that it is meant to be so transcendent and so otherly and therefore so ineffable. Again, that idea, language and words represent a very human construct, very earthly um, convention, whereas God and religious experiences are supposed to transcend that. Really interesting one from John Scottus Eregina here. He was an Irish theologian and scholar. He said that God is beyond all meaning and intelligence and he alone possesses immortality. His light is called darkness because of its excellence. And here's the key bit, as no creature can comprehend either what or how it is. Sorry, guys, I'm just having some green tea to get me going. Do you know what I mean? So what he says here, John Scott is Regina. God is beyond comprehension. Again, he's therefore outside of our human brains or our, our understanding and therefore our words. Remember Wittgenstein, the limits of your language are the limits of your world. All I know is what I have words for. That idea that, you know, reality and language really have this interesting impact on each other. I'm making a link now to my English language A-level. I think it was the Sapir Whorf. I, I can't even speak. We're talking about language and I can't even use it, my loves. Sapir Whorf hypothesis, when it was that idea about how language influences culture and vice versa. You know, that idea that God is so otherly that he's beyond comprehension. And so how could you use human language to articulate anything about him? Because he's so beyond that. And finally, Pseudo Dionysius said, we must not dare to speak or to form any conception of 
the hidden. Really interesting, this one. We must not dare to speak. It's not that we can't. You know, it's not that it's flawed and it's fallible and it's, you know, it doesn't do God justice. It's that we actually shouldn't do it. Like it's almost disrespectful to try and talk about God. So that's an interesting point that, you know, some people think it's disrespectful to try and use human language and conventions to talk about God, that it, you know, it's actually a rude thing to do. Um, you see that maybe in Islam and the ban on depictions of the prophets, you know, and that idea that if you want to draw Muhammad or, you know, draw God, that is, um, it's not allowed, it's disrespectful. Again, that idea of using human means of communication to talk about the divine. So I just want to give you some more key quotes before we get into it now. So Ninian Smart, who we know from um, Religious Experience, says religious language has its own special and peculiar structure. Again, it's all very different. AJ Eyre, I've got here as my next key thinker because of his verification principle, that idea that a proposition is said to be verifiable in the strong sense if its truth could be conclusively established in experience, but it is verifiable in the weak sense if it is possible for experience to render it probable. So, you know, does religious language conform to the um, epistemic imperialism of the verification principle and empiricism? Numinal knowledge and phenomenal knowledge I've brought in here, which is, of course, from Immanuel Kant, that idea of different cultures interpret the same fundamental truth in different ways through different frameworks. Um, John Hick developed that, didn't he, with religious pluralism. So the idea that all our language, all our worldly experience is very culturally relative and it's through a specific lens. And there is sort of the un undescribable um, noumenal or noumenal knowledge that we have to have interpreted through our um, cultural and very human, very social, different methods of translation, which is a really interesting idea, you know, that although maybe God isn't known through language, language is all that we have. So you could say maybe, okay, language isn't perfect, words aren't perfect for describing and knowing God, but it's all we have. So kind of we've just got to make the best of it. Maybe could be an interesting perspective there. Karl Barth, really important for this topic. He talks about God as radically other. The idea that because of the fall, um, you know, human beings and their intelligence, their intellect, their knowledge is limited, fallen and corrupted. And so there is no way of knowing God. You know, your fallen, sinful brain cannot know God. God must reach out to you rather than you making any kind of scaffolding or your own Tower of Babel to try and reach him. Um, Emile Brunner, who was a Swiss theologian associated with Karl Barth, um, said something very similar. He said, materially, the imago is lost. The idea of any connection between the two, that a man was made in the image of God and so could, you know, therefore maybe understand him or speak about him. He says that is lost by the fall. So the idea that human language is corrupted by the fall. And we see that in the Tower of Babel parable, don't we? In the Old Testament, I want to say, there's me sharing my Bible knowledge, that idea that humans used to communicate all in one language, I think. But then because they, they got too complacent, God decided to confuse them with all different languages. And so maybe that's an interesting metaphor um, for, you know, the confusion that Barth and Brunner talk about from the fall, that, you know, we are corrupted. There is that idea of sinfulness, Augustine, original sin, which means you are limited in what you can know. And if you're limited in what you can know, you're limited in what you can articulate in words. Vincent Brummer says, God's nature is not accessible to us. Neither in neither is the way in which he is wise. He says that even with analogy, um, which we'll be talking about from Aquinas, he says even with analogy, the analogy of proportionality, for example, takes us no further than a negative theology. So even when you use analogy, which is obviously a positive approach to religious language, you are still limited in what you can say. And um, it can't actually tell you anything about God, he's saying. Um, he also says that the success of science has had the effect that for many of us today, the search for knowledge has become the paradynamic model for all our thinking. 
So that's the idea that I've said, that because of the emphasis on science and the emphasis on empiricism, any other kind of language has sort of been discounted and discredited and pushed to the sidelines. Obviously, Alison McGrath talking about the non-overlapping magisteria tries to restore the role of religious language. Um, but the point is there, and also Paul Tillich, who we'll talk about in Symbol, and the idea it does have a different property, if you like, to scientific language. But the point being that we have this scientific mindset now in the modern Western world. And so Vincent Brummer says, this is a great quote, that the effect of this mindset for the way religious faith is understood has been disastrous. So it has been a disaster for religion and for religious language because we now see everything through this scientific lens. And so if it doesn't conform to what AJR calls the verification principle, it can't be verified. It's discounted as literally meaningless. And we see this um, synoptic link to ethics, don't we? And metaethics and the idea of what is the good. You know, re religious ethics are reduced to a matter of personal preference and emotion, emotivism, because they, they are beyond the scientific methodology that has become so supreme in the Western world and that Western scientific mindset. So interesting to consider the impact of that and the consequences of that on attitudes to religious language. Um, Dorothy Emmett though however tries to come to the rescue. She says we should understand natural theology as analogy not scientific account. That idea again religion is about expression not scientific fact. It's something different. John Macquarie a key thinker we'll be talking about in terms of analogy. He said that analogy makes possible the language and scripture that is at the heart of the Christian religion. So the idea, again, that analogy is a very enabling and empowering um, tool that religions have to use that worldly language, accepting it's limited, accepting it's fallible, but using that worldly language to say at least something. Um, really interesting. Don Cupid writes in Taking Leave of God that for God is a symbol that represents to us everything that spirituality requires of us and promises to us. We'll be unpicking and unpacking that when we talk about, uh, what's his name? Paul Tillich. <laughs> That's the one. We'll be talking about that in detail when we uh, talk about the role of symbol in Christian faith and religion in general. Um, DZ Phillips says, some theologians insist that we should speak of God as deep inside us, but secular psychiatric and psychoanalytic explanations threaten to monopolise explanations of what can be found here. Again, the idea of this monopoly from science, from medicine, from psychiatry that is taken over language. And so the moment someone talks about anything spiritual, we're diagnosing that in terms of its biological or psychological origins. Again, a fantastic fantastic link to religious experience and that idea that we attribute all um, religious experiences to a biological cause. Uh, Bertrand Russell, if you eat too much, you have visions. If you, you drink, or oh, no, if you eat too little, you have visions. If you drink too much, you see snakes. I think is the quote. Don't quote me on that one though. Google it. Google it, my love. <laughs> but an interesting synoptic link all the same, if I could remember it correctly. And DZ Phillips again, it is not yet settled what the reality of God consists in. Really interesting as well. Um, Jesus said, for example, my kingdom is not of this world. So can you use worldly language to talk about it? Jesus thought so. Jesus used a lot of language, my loves, and that's a really interesting point in terms of this apophatic, cataphatic discussion and debate. So we're going to tackle that debate for you now. The first one, very straightforward, is the apophatic way, the via negativa. This is the idea that you cannot say anything positive about God. So you can only ever say what God is not. So it's this notion that because of God's greatness, because of God's otherness, he is so other than the human, human language, which is obviously a human construct and it's limited by the human um, brain and human life, cannot talk about God. God is therefore beyond description. This is predominantly to avoid anthropomorphism. You know, the idea that when we use human language, we anthropomorphize anything we're talking about. You could say that about like animals as well, I suppose. You know, if you're talking about a dog as, oh, isn't he cute? It, it's sort of applying very human concepts to the non-human. Moses Maimonides was very, very key 
in developing this approach to religious language. He said, the only thing we can say positively about God is that he exists. So the via negativa says, the only thing you can say about God is that he exists. You cannot describe him. So you can state his existence, but you cannot say anything else. And um, so everything else must be negative in order to avoid disrespect. This is Maimonides that says this. It's a bit like a ship. So if you're talking about a ship, you can just say what a ship is not. So you can say, a ship is not a tree. A ship is not a plane. So you can say what it's not, but you can't um, ascribe qualities or description to it because that's disrespectful. So we can know something. We can know what God is not, but we can't know what God is. So we can know what God isn't and we can know that God exists but that's it there is no positive description allowed linking into that quote I started with from John Scottus Eregina that God is beyond all meaning and intelligence no creature can comprehend so you could not comprehend God's qualities you know if I started telling you God is good God is loving you would take a look at them through a human lens and that would limit you because you'd be thinking, oh, God's loving. It's a bit like me and how much I love a mayo chicken from McDonald's. And it's a totally different kind of love. And so you are limited the moment you start using human descriptions because of that anthropomorphism and because of apparently the disrespect associated. So this is seen as a more respectful approach to religious language, to religion, because you are avoiding that anthropomorphism. Um, and it also reflects the ineffable nature of religious experience. Um, you know, that idea that religion has this otherworldly nature. Um, and as a result, how can you use worldly language to discuss it? So it, it reflects that, you know, it's acknowledging that human language um, cannot do justice to the spiritual. Um, it's, however, incredibly limited. If I can only say what something is not, what is the point of that? Like the ship is not a plane. Great. It doesn't tell me anything about the ship whatsoever. So what on earth is the point of it? Um, you could say it's not a true reflection of what we see in religion. The Bible is not saying God is not this or Jesus is not this. You know, the, the religious traditions that we see, you know, albeit in the in the UK, for example, Christianity predominantly, do use positive descriptors. They do not agree that God is beyond description. Um, and so from a pragmatic sense, I suppose, from a practical point of view, a lot of religions do use that positive language to describe at least some attributes and qualities. Um, but as I say, important to remember, Islam, for example, does avoid imagery. You know, you can't depict the Prophet Muhammad, again, because it's seen as disrespectful to apply human methods of communication and expression to the divine, which is so much greater and beyond human comprehension. Um, interesting point here, though, from W.R. Inge, spelled I-N-G-E. He said that the via negativa leads to the annihilation of God. So the idea here is if you can't say anything at all, then what's the point of believing in God? You know, if you just say you cannot describe God, then you basically define him out of existence or you don't define him out of existence, which is the problem. Um, God might as well not exist at all. If you can't say anything, then God might as well not exist at all. What's the point of believing in this concept that you don't know anything about? And obviously, from that scientific point of view, well, if you can't say anything, if you've got nothing to prove God's existence by, then why on earth are you accepting belief in this indescribable being? You know, it doesn't make sense. It's not sufficient. So then we move on to the cataphatic way. Via a quick flip of green tea. I can't speak, my loves. Oh, good Lord. Right cataphatic way, the via positiva. So this is the idea that you can say something positive about God, primarily through analogy. So it's not saying that you can then know God directly through language, but it's saying that language can facilitate understanding, that language can bridge a gap. So you can be aware that language is fallible and subject to error, but you can still use it anyway, because to say something is better than to say absolutely nothing. So John Macquarie sets the tone here, really. He says, the way of analogy is the one that has the most positive content. Here's the key bit about the cataphatic way. Analogy is not a literal or direct way of talking about God. And yet, it is a way that seems to give us assurance 
that our talk is not just empty and that it does somehow impinge upon God and gives us insight into the mystery of being. So important there to uh, appreciate it's not a literal or direct, direct way of talking about God and yet... It gives us assurance our talk is not just empty. So the, the argument there is that the via negativa is empty. And so as Inge says, it leads to the annihilation of God. For Macquarie, analogy is helpful because it gives us assurance that our talk is not just empty. It allows us to say something. And then the key quote from him, which I love, analogy makes possible the language and scripture that is at the heart of the Christian religion. So if you're looking for a reason to support the cataphatic way, there you have it. That the language and scripture at the heart of the Christian religion uses analogy. It uses positive language to describe God. So what is this language being used? We are going to dive in with Aquinas and analogy now and he proposed two different kinds of analogy. Um, so he had the analogy of attribution and the analogy of proportion. They're both ways of saying something indirectly, emphasis on that, indirectly about God. So the analogy of attribution and you know and the idea of an attribute is that it's sort of something that comes off it, isn't it? So you can attribute blame or you can attribute, um, what else can you attribute? <laughs> Someone comment down below quick. What can you attribute? Anyway, it'll make sense. It'll make sense. So his example was a bull and it's urine. He said that you can know God through what you see in the world. You can see God through what he's produced, essentially. So the example with the bull in the urine is that from a bull's urine, by studying the urine and seeing its colour and its properties, you can know if the bull is good. So if the urine is good, you can know the bull is good. If the urine is good, then the bull is good. So the idea that you can know something about God from what he's produced. So for example, if you're saying, look at the perfection of the world or look at the goodness of creation, then the creator is good. So you can know something about the creator from the creation. Again, if the urine is good, then the bull is good. And now it doesn't mean, obviously, um, it's good in the same way. So the urine isn't good in the same way that the bull is good, if that makes sense, because the way we're measuring goodness in both those cases is different. Um, but sort of our criteria for what constitutes good is different. But you can say something. The idea, I suppose, that, um, you, you know, like Aristotelian virtue ethics, that idea that a good person will do good things. So if there are good things, they must have come from a good person, if that makes sense. You know, um, like you will only reap what you sow kind of thing. So if you're saying, oh, well, I can see goodness in this world. Well, the creator of it must have been good. So from the attributes, it's the analogy of attribution. And that idea that human love, for example, is therefore a reflection of divine greatness. Instantly, I'm thinking this is flawed because of um, what John Stuart Mill said about nature kills. Um, and that links in nicely with the problem of evil. You know, if this world is, as Hume said, a designedly imperfect world, then what does that say about the creator? So great synoptic links here with this analogy of attribution to the teleological argument and the idea of this world showing evidence of a designer, that idea of natural theology. Um, because actually what we see doesn't necessarily lead us to the conclusion of an omnipotent, omnibenevolent, omniscient creator God. Interesting to consider that. So a nice synopsis link there to year one content. Um, and then you have got the analogy of proportion. So the idea, you know, obviously of proportion, things in different quantities. So the notion here being that you can understand again to different degrees so if you see goodness in this world you understand it you know what goodness is there it is we've seen it my loves and then you can say okay human goodness and divine goodness you can say then they're the they are the same thing, but on a different scale. So, and that's the whole point here. So like you see human goodness and then you can, from that as your foundation, 
understand divine goodness because the divine goodness is like human goodness, but on a bigger scale. It's a different proportion. So it's a little bit like if you were making one cake at home and then you were making 10,000 cakes in a factory. You know, the sort of the ingredients would be the same, but the production, you know, so like the amount of eggs you'd need, the amount of flour you'd need would be on a different scale. In the same way, you know, human goodness is one cake, God's goodness is 10,000 cakes. It's in proportion. So the human goodness is in proportion to the humans, and that demonstrates sort of their goodness and its nature and its amount and characteristics. And then the idea is we then see God. Well, God is, you know, 10,000 times or whatever greater than humans. And so his goodness will be 10,000 times greater. So an example here, a really good example is the faithfulness of a dog and the faithfulness of a Christian. So we can understand faithfulness in terms of the relationship between a dog and its owner. And then we can apply that concept of faithfulness to a Christian in their relationship with God. Now, we're not saying, or vice versa, God's faithfulness to his creation. Now, we're not saying that the Christian having faithfulness to God is exactly the same as the dog having faithfulness to its owner. But we can understand the concept and we can understand how it might look on a bigger scale from that comparison if that makes sense. So with proportion, we're talking about human good as being about a finite being and divine good as being about an infinite being. So it's about scale. In my head, all I can think right now is, you know, on a maths paper, when you're doing the scale factor of like a triangle, and I could never do this, and you had to like draw the shape to like scale factor four. So then you had to like draw it like four times bigger or whatever. I never got it right, my loves. Stem and leaf was my limit. It's like that, you know? The original, you could say, is the human goodness because that's what we understand. That's what we can comprehend. That's what we know as humans. That's, you know, what we're working with. And then I'm like, God's love is on a scale factor 10,000. And so you can then imagine that giant enlarged shape which represents his goodness. So you're sort of understanding the commonalities and the basics of the concept, but you're also understanding the difference in scale, the difference in size, the difference in, drum roll please, proportion. Everything's in proportion, for example, to whether the being is finite or infinite. It makes a difference, doesn't it? A finite being's goodness compared to an infinite being's goodness. It makes a difference, you know, a dog being loyal to its owner and a Christian being loyal to God. They're happening on a different scale. Everything's in proportion to that wider context of who is involved. And if you're using human understanding of goodness to understand divine goodness, you're obviously going to have a massive scale factor difference because one being is mortal and um, finite. The other being is immortal, omnipotent, omnipresent. I could go on with the qualities of God, but I don't want to bore you more than I already have. <laughs> so really interesting with both of these examples that they are using worldly knowledge and our worldly experience to move to a description, an understanding, um, an example about the divine. So it's using human experience and using human concepts as kind of the scaffolding um, or the catalyst, if you like, for talking about God, but on a different scale. So for example, we are not saying that human goodness is directly the same as divine goodness, but we're using human goodness as the basis for our understanding. And we're saying it's just on a bigger scale. It's in proportion. In the same way, the analogy of attribution, you know, um, I see the product and I therefore know something about the producer. Um, and, you know, it's about moving these stepping stones, these climbing frames, these um, frameworks for understanding. So it's not saying it in the same way that human faithfulness is the same as divine faithfulness. 
for example, but it's using what we do understand to try and say something about what we don't. Anyway, I feel like I've gone on about that for about 10 hours now. So <laughs> just to move on a little bit, this is interesting because it's a balance between uh, univocal language and equivocal language. So the idea that language is the same in every single situation, so the word good means the same in every single context, and then on the other hand, the idea that the word good means a different thing in every single context. This approach, the analogical approach, is halfway between the two um, and it tries to bridge that gap. It's very similar to what Jesus did because he used the phrase, the kingdom of God is like. So he never said the kingdom of God is, which is interesting. He didn't say the kingdom of God is a mustard seed. He said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And then he used the parable. So the parables were not meant to be scientific statements stating precisely and explicitly, you know, the the um, floor plan for the kingdom of God. You know, that's not what he was doing. He was using human concepts that people understood to talk about something they didn't and that they couldn't really comprehend. And so when he says it's like a mustard seed, they aren't then thinking it's a mustard seed. They are using that human concept to move to an understanding of something otherworldly and so far beyond and above human existence. Um, now, this enables us to say something. And again, that idea that saying something is better than nothing. So even if you can't give me an exact description of God, you know, you've got to be limited by your human terminology and human experience, at least you're saying something. You know, I want to be able to say something positive about the thing I believe in. Um, the idea that we can only do theology and philosophy with words, um, you know, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. So the fact that the via positiva enables me to say something and it enables me to have assurance my talk is not just empty as John Macquarie says is a good thing however the problems of this are quite um far far extending my loves for example every person interprets analogy differently so when you're using analogy because it's not concrete because it's bridging a gap um and it does depend on sort of your ability to reach certain conclusions not everyone will reach the same conclusions so you know if you have an analogy people are going to interpret it differently and so there's not really much consistency and therefore credibility to this approach um, a, a good question to ask as well is, how far do we stretch the meaning? So what can analogy actually tell us about God? So if you understand human good, okay, you can say that that means divine good is on a much, much bigger scale. But how do we understand what that actually means? You know, we have reached the limits of our understanding. Saying that it's on a bigger scale, is that something we can really understand? Is that something we can really comprehend? How far can we stretch the meaning of what is ultimately human language and human terminology. Um, Brummer makes an interesting point. He says, analogy gives the appearance you can say something, but actually you cannot. So, you know, you think you therefore understand God. Oh, well, yes, the kingdom of God's like a mustard seed. He's saying, oh, well, people therefore think they understand the divine, but really they don't. You know, analogy takes you no further than a negative theology. It doesn't actually allow you to say anything positive about God, even though you think you do. And obviously Karl Barth saying that God is radically other. So your analogy is just not going to work. You know, no analogy, no attempt at scaffolding, no attempt at using human concepts to understand the divine on a bigger scale is going to work. You're never going to understand that bigger scale. It's always, always, always going to be out of grasp, out of reach, beyond comprehension and intelligibility. So really interesting. Final point, Richard Swinburne says that religious language is actually univocal, not analog I can't speak, analogical. So the idea being that, that actually, whenever people use language, they, they aren't making an analogy at all. You know, they can't bridge the gap. They are just using it in a very human way, where they're assuming it means the same thing for the divine as it does for them in their everyday lives, which, you know, many people would say is flawed. So we then come to our third approach to language and another sip of green tea. So our first approach was obviously the idea you can say nothing. 
the ataphatic way, the via negativa. Our second approach was the cataphatic way, the via positiva. That idea you can say something positive by using human concepts, human ideas um, to bridge the gap, if you like, to illustrate a point or to demonstrate a fact, a fact, obviously it's all about faith, about God, analogy, using human terms and concepts to move to an understanding of the divine, to say something, anything, just to give some positive words um, to our religious beliefs and our, um, yeah, our conversations about faith. We then have the third way, which takes a radically different, I think, approach to language, certainly very different to empirical language, and it is this, symbol. So symbol, let's explore this. Symbol is all about, in my opinion, participation, myth and spiritual truth. And I've started with those words because it's really important. A lot of people, I think, just assume when you study symbol, it's about this represents something. You know, a symbol represents something, which is true. But when we talk about it from Paul Tillich's understanding of religious language, we're not just talking about representation. We're also talking about participation because Tillich is not saying, oh, the resurrection represents this. It does, he, he believes that, but he goes further. He says it doesn't just represent something, he says you actually participate in it. So it's a very spiritual thing. You know, it doesn't just represent something, you actually participate and engage in it. And this is really interesting to consider. So let's get down to business. So symbol is based on, you know, the fact and the belief God is outside the empirical world. So he is beyond ordinary uses of language. He is beyond, um, you know, human experience, obviously. And so you have to use language in a different way. Essentially, I'm thinking instantly of Alistair McGrath and the non-overlapping magisteria, that religious language is a very different kind of language to any other use of language by human beings. And so it must have a different nature. It must serve a different purpose. So it's not meant to be ultimately taken literally. It's meant to serve instead a metaphorical, mythological, spiritual purpose. Ultimately, it's spiritual truth, not scientific truth. Um, obviously, for the emotivists, they would say, well, no. <laughs> Frankly, they'd say, no, that's not how it works. You know, all language has to be empirically verifiable or it's meaningless. Spiritual truths are lies, basically. It's delusional. It's, it's not how things work. And that is the epistemic imperialism of our contemporary scientific-based society. So what we see here is Tillich says about symbols that every symbol is double-edged. It opens up reality and the soul. He believed that symbols open up new levels of reality that are otherwise closed to us. They work on a deep and powerful level. He said, heaven and hell must be taken seriously as metaphors for the polar ultimates in the experience of the divine. So a symbol unlocks something within our soul and expresses something about the ultimate. So when you have a symbol and examples of symbols are the six days of creation, Mary and Joseph, uh, the wedding at Cana, the virgin birth, the crucifixion. Anything that is a symbol is about unlocking a spiritual truth and unlocking a spiritual connection. So it is not about demonstrating a scientific fact. It's not meant to be read in the same way as a scientific textbook giving you statements of fact, which are provable and demonstrable in a, uh, what, what's it called? In a lab, in a science lab. It's totally different. It's a totally different kind of language usage. It's not about demonstrating, as I say, empirical fact. It's about unlocking spiritual truths and it's about facilitating connection with a story. And that's where the word myth comes in. You know, a myth isn't just like a, a, a work of fiction. It has a deeper meaning behind it. It's a bit like a fairy tale. You know, yes, they are fictional stories, but we believe they have eternal truths behind them, that the message they have is a truth. And even though the story isn't literally true, we believe it has, as I say, an eternal truth, you know, about good will always conquer evil. You know, it has that moral message, that deeper meaning. And this is what we're saying about 
um, symbol. So religious language on the surface may not be empirically verifiable or it might not have that scientific credibility, but that doesn't mean it's meaningless. It just takes on a different kind of meaning. It has a spiritual meaning and we can participate in symbols because they unlock a deeper level of connection. They work on a deep and powerful level, unlocking something within our soul and expressing something about the ultimate. As I say, key examples, the wedding at Cana and the virgin birth, the crucifixion. So the crucifixion, for example, it symbolizes the significance of Christ and his death. It participates in the event by representing it and it gives access to a deeper understanding of of it. So the crucifixion, you know, if you think, is the key, key event in Christianity. And so you as a Christian can participate in that. What does that event mean to you? What does it not only represent, but what does it mean to you? How does it change your life? And that makes me think a little bit another link to religious experience, sorry not sorry, about William James when he talks about religious experience and he says fruits not roots. What does that story do to the Christian? How does it transform their life? For a start it gives them hope in eternal life and it, you know, it transmits this life-changing truth. If you accept and believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that is going to transform your life forever and it's going to transform the way that you look at everything. Like it's going to totally transform every aspect of your life. Whether that is a scientific fact that a man died and then came back from the dead is irrelevant. Irrelevant according to the symbolic approach to religious language. You know, you cannot apply that scientific framework to this language because it's not trying to do the same thing as science. It's trying to transmit a spiritual truth instead. It's trying to unlock something in the person that hears it. It's trying to open up a new level of reality. So symbols use language not to prove something about this reality or say something literally true about this physical reality, but they are designed to unlock something about a new one. So they're working, and I quote from Tillich, on a deep and powerful level, unlocking something within our soul and expressing something about the ultimate. Again, not at face value. It's metaphorical. It's spiritual. It's something much deeper. We're using language to unlock something, to represent something, um, and to allow participation in something that goes beyond what it does at face value. You know, if if we just read language through a scientific lens, we expect everything to be sort of black and white statements of fact. This is saying that just because, you know, the idea that someone rose from the dead or whatever, you're saying that's not empirically verifiable. I don't believe it. Sorry. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's meaningless. It's a different approach to language. It's the idea words are being used in a very different way and that you can participate with them. So it's very spiritual that you can believe they represent something, they unlock something and they bring you a spiritual truth like those fairy tales imparting a deeper meaning rather than just being read at face value, surface level. Um, key questions, key thoughts here. Reality is irrelevant. It's not about the reality of the situation, such as whether Jesus really walked on water, such as whether um, Adam and Eve really ate an apple in the Garden of Eden. That is irrelevant. It's about what that means to you, what that represents to you, what that does for you, essentially, how that changes you and your life. So, for example, Tillich believed that God is the ground of all being. Now, if you said that to a scientist you know, I think they'd look a bit confused. They, they wouldn't really have a clue what you're talking about. They'd go, do you mean gravity? You know, <laughs> they'd be very confused. So again, it's this idea that the language we're using is of a very different nature, if you like. It serves a different purpose to that empirical language that we've become accustomed to through a... Um, exaltation of science and the scientific method. Um, now, a really positive thing about symbol is that it preserves the mystery and transcendence. So in religious language, you know, it's not meant to be factual statements. It's meant to maintain that mystique and that transcendence because ultimately, if you're talking about God, you're talking about something that transcends this physical world, doesn't it? And so religious symbolic language 
keeps that because it's saying, no, you can't talk about God at face value. You've got to move beyond the words. You've got to connect with something. You've got to work hard to find the spiritual meaning and to attain that higher level of consciousness, if you like, to understand what we're actually talking about here. And therefore, it avoids reducing God to our level. When you're talking symbolically, you're not therefore risking reducing God to something that can be talked about in the science lab or cannot as the case may be so you actually manage to defend god's existence by saying scientific methods can't talk about religious statements because they're a very different kind of statement you know they possess very different properties and purposes um Symbols, however, you know, and you'll find symbols in the secular world just as much as you'll find them in the spiritual world, but symbols are often culturally dependent. You know, different symbols mean different things to different people. And so where is the conformity? Where is the consistency? Um, there's a debate as well about whether they are cognitive or non-cognitive. Um, and obviously that central question of, is this what religion tries to do? Or is religion trying to say something with credibility. So when a Christian talks about the crucifixion, do they believe it actually happened? Or is religion just a case of, you know, oh yeah, it represents something to me. <laughs> is that doing what a lot of religious people believe justice? So lots and lots of questions. Talking of questions, we have got key questions from the OCR exam board to consider. We need to compare the approaches to religious language. So when we're comparing, we're obviously looking at which is best and why, which one is, you know, most compatible, which has got the most strengths to it. Why is that? Why is another one not achieving the same thing? Um, that kind of question. We've got to find out whether or not the apophatic way enables effective understanding of theological discussion. So our thinkers at the very start of the session, um, such as Meister Eckhart, saying that it's only when you move beyond language and you enter what, what was called the cloud of unknowing. It's a poem that you should Google, my loves. I forgot to talk about it. <laughs> That's why you've got to Google it. Oh, a little bit of homework. Oh, yes. Because um, the cloud of unknowing, that you can only connect with God and understand God by moving beyond language and entering a cloud of unknowing. So that you can only understand God when you stop being limited by language and by words which sort of weigh you down and restrict you because they make everything you do very anthropomorphic which is not helpful for understanding God who is not supposed to be a, a human being. Whether or not Aquinas' analogical approaches support effective expression of language about God. So do those approaches, the attrition and proportionality, support our expression of language about God or do they cause more harm than good or do they just not do anything at all really neither here nor there and then is religious discourse comprehensible if religious language is understood as symbolic so we said it's culturally relative but we can also say you know it, it's dependent on you actually getting it you know some people say oh I'm a maths person <laughs> then I'm not very creative. You know, when you do an English language or English literature and you're trying to find the deeper meaning in a text, the author's intentions and all that kind of thing, what does the poem symbolise? And people are like, what? What? It just means what it says. You know, for a lot of people, they wouldn't understand it. So if you're saying Jesus is talking in code, which a lot of biblical scholars talk about a lot for many different reasons. For example, some scholars say Jesus had to talk in code um, to hide the true meaning of what he was saying because it was so radical and controversial that, you know, it was causing a lot of disruption. And so he spoke in code to sort of conceal his identity and conceal his true aims and ambitions. So that's a very practical purpose. But another purpose could be that it's, you know, in code, if you like, in um, symbolic language, because it's a different kind of truth. That's a very different use of words, of language, of, um, yeah, communication, really. It's a very different nature, a very different style. And the question, therefore, is, is that comprehensible? And what are the consequences for how we read the Bible? If we're saying it's symbolic, how do we understand it? You know, so did nothing happen? 
You know, do I just therefore think, oh, none of this happened. It just represents something to me. What does that do? Does that undermine that sense of sort of credibility, authority and consistency that the organised church has tried to build up? You know, the church has really tried to give so much authority to the teachings of the Bible. If you then just say it's all symbolic, what are the consequences of that? Would that undermine religious belief and would it undermine faith in general, for example. And I think that word is a really great, great place, we've gone Australian now, a great place for us to end because at the end of the day, religion is all about faith. And so what does faith mean? It means believing in something that you don't have proof for, that you don't really understand. To put your faith in something means that you accept you don't understand and you don't have the answers um, and you don't actually know what's going to happen, but you do it anyway. And does that really get to the core here of this debate? That idea that language and understanding is a barrier to your belief, that you need to enter a cloud of unknowing and make, as Kierkegaard says, a leap of faith precisely because you don't understand, precisely because you can't use words to talk about God, that's why your faith and your belief in him is so amazing. And that is a really interesting point to conclude on, because, you know, as we see in the 20th century perspectives on language games and uh, the verification principle, the modern world is very convinced you need proof in order to believe something. And religion is trying to do basically the opposite. It's saying you don't need proof, you need faith. And so when it comes to language, if we look at it through that scientific lens, we want language to prove things. But when we look at it through that religious lens, is language trying to, you know, engage with us on a spiritual level? Is it trying to unlock something on a deeper um, world, as Tillich would say with symbol? Or is, you know, is language representing something? Is it helping or hindering our understanding of God? Um, and so that's it from today's um, RE podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you've got any corrections or anything, you know, that you think needs to be uh, updated or added in, maybe it would be great to hear from you. As I say, comment on the YouTube video or get in touch on social media, Woodle underscore. I'll be back next week with another episode. I hope you have a brilliant day. Good luck with your studies and live your very best life. Take care and I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.